with family. <laughs> and so good to be here. And uh, so right that y'all do on a Sunday morning. It's just, it's awesome. Um, that song, man, it, it really meant a lot to me, especially what we're, what we're going to talk about today. You know, how many of you have ever heard the term commodification before? Never. Never. Some of the, you know, some of the people who uh econ majors are, Something becomes a, a commodity when it, it's no longer about its intrinsic value anymore. It's about what you can get from it. Like if I was a rice farmer, rice for my family means everything. You know, it's, I, I harvest it so that we can, you know, eat and have it on our table and feed our kids. But any surplus rice that I have, that surplus rice turns into, well, you know, what I can sell it for, what I can get from it, what I can use it for, right? There's nothing wrong with it, but commodification gets kind of ugly when consumerism kicks in and things get taken take to a whole other level. What happens with consumerism, eventually there's this thing of alienation that kicks in. The Marxists talk about this. I'm not a Marxist, but there's a truth in here. Just bear with me for a second. All right? Alienation kicks in. So now it's, when it's all about what I can get from a product, what I can get, from a commodity, you forget about the story behind the commodity. And all you care about is what you can get out of something. It's usefulness, utility, right? So let's say you're, you're in line at, um, at the Gap and you're returning some clothes. You know, you're not thinking about the different factories that are shut down in Southeast Asia and other places um, where they have all these empty factories now in uh, places like Cambodia where companies that come in like Walmart and other places, millions of dollars they spent building these huge factories and then when another government gives them a better labor deal, they abandon that place to go to the next government for a better deal and now all the people who used to work there, many of them, many of those women now turn to prostitution to provide for their families. The farmers who come in to sell their wares hook up with the prostitutes. They wind up getting A's. They take A's back to their wives. Now they have orphanages that are set up in Cambodia to address that one issue. All right? But here's the deal. When we go to the store to buy our stuff, we don't think about the story behind what's going on. All we're thinking about is, man, does this make me look good? <laughs> does this fit? Is this purse selling style? Whatever. So eventually, commodification takes you away from the story behind the reason why you're getting All you care about what you can get out of something, usefulness, right? That's why that song means so much to me because with beauty, beauty is just beautiful because it's beautiful, whatever it is. And that's what art is all about. That's why we need artisans in the body of Christ because we need to value things not for what we can get out of them sometimes. We need to value things just because they are, they exist, and artists remind us of that. That's why I'm glad, to, so much glad to see the arts take their place back in the church because we just, it reminds us of who God is. You know what? God, you're just beautiful for who you are, not for what I can get out of you. I don't want to come to you with a consumer mindset and say, okay, what can, can you pay my bills today? Can you help me with my marriage now? Can you help me with this or that? I just want you for who you are. I don't just want your principles. I want you. I don't want you just to be the person who gives me the outline for my business. I want you to be with me in all that I'm doing. 
Because there's a story behind the whole thing that God wants to connect us to. All right. He's just beautiful. Just because he is. And God wants to take us to a place of appreciating that once again. All right. So in that, we have to understand this whole thing about the God of providence. The guy who loves to weave stories, and he has a storyline, and you are in it, all right? And more than just trying to get something out of you, God just wants to be with you because he values you, right? And um, that's what his death on the cross was all about. He loved you so much that he'd rather die than spend eternity without you. Isn't that powerful? But what I want to get in today, I don't know, I've gone into the whole thing, um, I have a new book that's come out, uh, Creative for Influence, Transforming Culture from Where You Are. And uh, I could talk about that. But what's in my heart to share this morning, this will be at Barnes & Nobles in a couple of weeks. And all. this is stuff I used to share at, uh, at, at their house, man, <laughs> on the kitchen table. And uh, oh, thank you so much. Yeah, but um, I want to share with you a lot of what we, talk, what we sang about in the song, that's why I was so wrecked. This whole thing of the beauty of the God of providence, right? Um, you have a Bible, go to Ephesians 2 and 10. And some of you don't know me, so I'm going to share a little bit of my history. You want to what, what this old pot is up here? This is actually something from my family, passed down almost 200 years since this 4th of July, we're going to weave all this stuff in together, right? Because <laughs> God has a story behind every nation and everything, every people. There's always more than what meets the eye. Ephesians 2 says this, For we is workmanship in Christ Jesus, for, created in Christ Jesus for good works, say good works, which he had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right? Now turn to Hebrews 11, 37 through 40. It says this, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in the sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these by faith, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. So that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Today we're going to talk about the God of providence. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, we love you. We just thank you so much how you look over our lives Everything we think that that's an accident, that's not. <laughs> and how you weave your storyline into our lives. God, we thank you so much that we are your workmanship. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to be released in our midst. That you, we would encounter your hearts once again, God. And we stand in the glory and the beauty of who you are. Wonderful storyteller. <laughs> You're amazing. <laughs> 
In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, let's talk about Providence. I love movies, especially like the old cartoons, right? Original frames from those shows are auctioned off for seven thousands of dollars, right? The reason for this, the rareness and the age, etc. But have you thought about what's involved in putting together one of those old cartoons, right? Like remember, like the old ones, like Snow White, when they had to draw every single frame, they, they drew almost over a million different frames, right? But you don't think about that because it's going you know, in, in one second. You're seeing twenty-four frames actually go by. Well, for every 24 frames, somebody actually had to draw each individual frame, all right? Some artists actually had to paint it out and put it all together. Well, um, they actually auction off those frames now because they're worth so much money, right? I mean, sometimes $40,000, $50,000, $100,000 for one frame from an old cartoon, right? So you think about it, several reasons for it, but have you ever thought about what's involved in putting those cartoons together? Have you ever thought about how the artist had to meticulously and accurately draw every single little detail, right? It said that one, for one second of film on a screen, it takes up to 24 frames. It's one thing to, to you know, put together a regular movie, but the intricate detail to draw each frame in a cartoon, it's mind-boggling. Craig Larson says it like this. He says, producing an animated movie was a gargantuan task in those days of animation. Artists could draw over one million pictures in a film. Each picture flashed onto the screen for a mere one twenty-fourth of a second. As we watch the movie run at regular speed, it seems so simple. We have no idea all that goes into it. Our lives are like that movie. God puts infinite thought, skill, and careful attention into every detail. Yet as our lives run at regular speed, we have no idea how much of God's providence feels every single second. Right? So it's amazing to think what pains God is so involved in the affairs of everyday ordinary people. Angels are even blown away by it and ask, who is man that they are so mindful of him? Right? We just go throughout our normal day, traveling at regular speed while God prevents accidents, orchestrates blessings, restrains wars, involves himself in wars, changes minds, iterates bad decisions, and makes bad decisions into good decisions. Thank God. <laughs> God is a wonderful artist, and he meticulously works frame by frame designing destinies for our lives and nations. As a matter of fact, he fearfully and wonderfully makes them, according to Psalm 139. He even picks the families we're born into, predetermines where we are to live, and the places we are to stay. He knows the people we will meet and introduces us to each other in most unusual ways. He is the God of providence. As a matter of fact, the Puritans called him just that, providence. Here's what Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary says about providence. It says, Providence is the continuous activity of God in his creation by which he preserves and governs. It is the denial of the idea that the universe is governed by chance or fate. God's actions, however, do not violate the reality of human choice or negate man's responsibility as a moral being. God permits sinful acts to occur, but he does not cause man to sin. He often overrules evil for good. God preserves all things through his providence. 
Through his providence, God controls the universe, Psalm 103, 19. The physical world, Matthew 5, 45. The affairs of nations, Psalm 66 and 7. Man's birth and destiny, Galatians 1, 15. Man's successes and failures, Luke 1, 15. And the protection of his people, Psalm 4 and 8. He governs insignificant things, Matthew 10, 29 through 31, and apparent accidents. <laughs> so it's sobering and rather humbling when you consider how intricate God loves you is involved in nations, involved in your life, and involved in all our affairs. Just think he preserves all things, plans our births and destinies, governs our affairs, looks over insignificant things and apparent accidents. I'm a believer in providence. Here's what William Hutchison Mary said. He says this. He says, until one is committed, see, none of this stuff kicks in, the whole thing of providence unraveling in somebody's life until they get committed. And they cross the line and say, God, I want to be a part of what you want me to do. All of a sudden, all these things begin to come together in your life, right? He says this, un- William Hutchinson Mary says, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth that ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the, mo- that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help that one which would never have otherwise occurred. A whole stream of events issues from that decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material of assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you can do or dream to do, begin it. This is what he says. All right. Here's what Kieran Garris says in his book. Um, he quotes uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning in his book, Windows of the Soul. How many of you read that book? Incredible book. If you haven't read it, read it, right? Here's what uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning says. She says, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. <laughs> read that again. Earth's crammed with heaven. Heaven's right in the middle of us, right here on earth. In every common bush, a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest just sit around and pluck blackberries. <laughs> in other words, you can miss these providential moments, those invitations from the Lord, right? King Gary says it like this. He says, thank you, God, for your hand that reaches me, touching my arm, tapping my shoulder, telling me to pause and to look and to listen to all the windows of the soul. Help me to see something in those windows, something of heaven, every earthly event, something of the divine in every human soul. Please, dear God, give me grace to stand shoes in hand before all that in some way bears your glory. For I don't want to spend my days just sitting around plucking blackberries. Providence, we see it throughout the Bible, right? Abraham called him the everlasting God, right? And it's the name for God there is Olam El. That means the God of eternity, both past and future, right? And when we say everlasting God, it's, it's, it's more than that. It's God, it's God of past and future all at the same time, right? In other words, he's God both ways, right? And he needed to call on, the, uh, on uh, God as Olam El uh, in particular because he and his son later on, his distant relative, would come across a man named Abimelech who was a king. And both of them did the same thing, had the same encounter. 
you know, was that just chance? Was that just fate? No, I believe God, the God of providence had kicked in so that generationally he could intercept something that was going to happen later on. All right. We see the God of providence in, uh, in Esther. Now, listen, all you historians will tell you, your Bible scholars will tell you, you won't see the name of God anywhere in the book of Esther. But let you see the handiwork of God working throughout the entire book. Matter of fact, in Esther 9.3, that was the day, it talks about the, the day of uh, Adder when uh, the, uh, the Jews were to be annihilated by their enemies. But it says, but the opposite happened and the reverse happened and the Jews annihilated, annihilated their enemies and Haman's sons were found and brought to justice on the 12th month, the 13th day. That was the exact same day that the Jews were to be wiped out. Was that just happenstance? Was that just chance? No, because God says, I'll bless those who will bless you. I'll curse those who will curse you. And the God of providence sticks his hand in and he changes history because Esther made a commitment with God and providence began to move, right? Now, we talk about the, his handiwork and his workmanship. We read it there in Ephesians 2 and 10 where he says we are his workmanship, right? The word workmanship is a powerful word. It's the word poema. Everybody say poema. 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 You hear the word poem in there, right? Now, that's where the word, this is where the word poem is derived from, right? But poema itself was a word that literally meant a fabric maker, a tailor. So this is the word that's used for somebody back then who worked with garments, so God basically is a tailor maker of our destinies. And so he's able to weave together all these things in our lives together for his good, right? And together for our good, right? William Temple, former Archbishop of Canterbury, once said, when I pray, coincidences happen. But when I stop praying, the coincidences stop. <laughs> all right? Providence kicks in when someone makes a sacrificial commitment to God. And once that happens, it continues on because God loves to remember, right? So even if that person is dead and gone, the hand of providence will still move. You see that in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 9 with uh, uh, Jonathan and David. Jonathan's dead and gone, right? But they made a covenant with each other, he and David, that, that when Jonathan... And, uh, well, when David became a king, that they would stay together in the kingdom together. They're in the same palace, but Jonathan's dead and gone. So David says something like this. He says, who of the house of the Saul cannot show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Then he rephrases it and he says, who of the house of the Saul cannot show the kindness of God for Jonathan's sake? All right. So in other words, he's saying, this is what the kindness of God looks like. So they go out and find this broken, busted up kid named Mephibosheth who knows nothing about the covenant and brings him into it because David is still under the influence of Jonathan's memory. Now, if that's what the kindness of God looks like, right? He's talking about generational blessings that go from generation to generation to generation. I feel a little bit like that Mephibosheth. All right, because of this kettle pot that's been in my family passed down, like I said, for, for at least six or seven generations. It was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, they used it for prayer. And honestly, I hadn't thought much about it until I went to a little uh, conference in Colorado Springs, Colorado. All right. I go to this conference. It's 2001. Um, I'm there, and I don't know a soul there, and a lady named Cindy Jacobs is praying for 
a young man named Billy Austin, and she's also praying for Dutch Sheets. And while she's praying for him, she begins to pray and prophesy over them that they would go to Williamsburg, Virginia, and do prayer and revival meetings across the country. And then she stopped, and she said, hold up, there's something to this, because Dutch's real name is William. Of course, Billy, his real name is William. And here we are talking about Williamsburg. Does anybody know what William means? And I'm in the back. It's about 500 folks, and I just kind of blurt out and say, noble spirit, resolute protector. And she said, that's right. Who said that? And I was like, so I kind of poked my hand up. She said, you William too. Get down here. It's too white up here anyway. Come on down. <laughs> so I come down. But see, something powerful happens when William Dutch Seats and William Billy Olson and me, William III, when the three of us get connected together, Spirit of God falls on all three of us. We had never met each other before. We began weeping over each other. And she began to prophesy that we would go to Williamsburg, Virginia and do prayer and revival meetings, right? And we'd never met each other before. And um, and so after the conference, after Duff gave this message, well, I'm going to share a little bit of that message with you. Um, we began to think, okay, God, is this really you? Are you really in this? But little did I know, the God of providence is weaving things together, right? So uh, go and get an encyclopedia to look up Williamsburg, Virginia. So what's the big deal about Williamsburg, Virginia? And so we look up Williamsburg, Virginia, and the encyclopedia and it says that Williamsburg, Virginia was named after William III of England. And the Holy Spirit said, well, not, not, only was, not only were you the third William to come up during that prayer time, but your name is William IV III. And I thought, ah, that's a nice little cool dink. So I look up William III of England in the encyclopedia and it says, and the Dutch chose William III to be a leader. So I'm like, okay, here's this man named Dutch Sheets asking me to go to Williamsburg with him on this prayer journey. It's like, either this is God or a bad joke, right? <laughs> so we pray about it and uh, toss this whole idea around. And then Dutch comes back to me and says, hey, you know what? Here's the name of all the cities we want to go to. And, uh, you know, so continue to pray and consider, you know, if you're supposed to do this or not. He sends me all the names of the cities. Well, here's where I have to take you back. See, that year, I went on my first 40-day fast. And during that fast, somebody spray-painted my neighbor's car in my neighborhood. I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He said, prayer walk your neighborhood. So I started prayer walking in my neighborhood. And I began just, you know, I prayer walk my neighborhood, got a chance to sh- share the gospel with Muslims. I got a chance to uh, uh, pray for people who were sick. They would get healed. But more importantly, I would just walk and weep and pray for revival. I mean, I get up early in the morning and late at night so that people wouldn't, you know, see me because I was, toward the end of the fast, I was a mess because I would just weep for a revival. I was reading about the first great awakening, the second great awakening, the Zeus Street revival, all those different things. Well, here's what happened. Seven months later, when all this stuff happened with Dutch and I, when he gave me a list of all the cities that he wanted to go to, all of them, except for about two, were names of streets in my neighborhood that I was prayer walking. For example, I went to uh, Jamestown, the original settlement. Jamestown Court was right across the street from me. Went to Princeton University. Princeton Street was two streets behind me. Went to Hanover, New Hampshire. And Hanover Street was next to Princeton Street. Went to Dartmouth University. Dartmouth Court was four streets down on the left. Went to uh, New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven Court was one street down on the left. Literally, I could go on. And if we, we didn't have the cities uh, represented on this list on the names of the streets. We had even the whole region. They used to call that whole area the, the Chesapeake Bay Area. And during that time, I lived on Chesapeake Street. 
So why would God take a, a white man named Dutch and a black man named William III and connect them together? Well, the Dutch were the first ones to send slave ships into America in 1619. And William III, that king of England, was the first king of England to send slaves into America. God was basically saying, I want to use your relationship to show that I want to reverse the effects of yesterday's pain. It says Acts 17, 25 through 27, where God says, I'll make from one blood many nations and determine the bounds of their habitations, time beforehand, that they may seek after me and find me, though they be not far from every one of us. So God determined that the bounds of my habitation would be a place with streets named after a prayer journey that I was going to go to later on in life because he was connecting me to the unfinished business of all the people who had gone before me because he was still under, in the, under the influence of these people's devotion till almost 200 years ago. What am I talking about? Well, basically, during this time period, my uh, well, look at the Dutch's message during that time period, which connected everything together. Dutch was teaching this little message on synergy, right? Synergy. Synergy is when you take two separate things, and when you connect them together, they don't create an addition of power, but a multiplicity of power. Scientists say you take two horses, and if you put them together, they create so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. Spiritually, we know that one could put a 1,000 in flight and two could put what? 10,000 in flight. That's synergy. So we start getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and white. We start getting all this agreement in prayer between the old and the young, male, the female. We can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before, right? But then that said something that was very, very powerful. He said, not only can you agree in prayer with a person sitting next to you, you can agree in prayer with a generation behind you. Wow. He talked about how he's at our school, Christ for the Nation, and he was in prayer, leading him in the time of prayer for revival, and the Lord told him, he said, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of Gordon Lindsay, the founder of the school. And he said, okay, God, that sounds nice, but Gordon Lindsay's dead. <laughs> he's been dead for you know, more than 30 years, and I know you're not in the talking to the dead. Holy Spirit, is this you? He said, but his prayers aren't dead. They're still alive before my throne. And there are things I promised this man in prayer that I want to release into the school, but I can't do it yet because I need this generation to come in agreement with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages. It's like an Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham's dead and gone. 40 years later, God raises up an Isaac, then a Jacob. Breaks that Jacob thing off that boy. Makes him Israel because he promised this man back here, a nation. And when he did it for Israel, it was just as if he'd done it for Abraham. Right? Hebrews eleven thirty nine and 40. All these by faith. They were approved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So to depart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect without us. In other words, there's a whole company of people looking over the back of the heaven saying, hey, Eckerts, hey, Fords, don't mess this thing up because God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you. You know, Jesus said at best, greater works are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. And he'll start something in one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations. When he began to say that, I was a mess because I remember the story behind this pot. It was used by my slave forefathers. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, they used it for prayer because they were owned by this very wicked slave master who had beaten them for any reason, and praying was one of them. So back then, they wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. All right? It was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read or write or to teach them. 
how to read and write. So this is how this slave master was who, who had him there in Lake Providence, Louisiana. All right. And um, if he heard him praying, he would beat him as well. Right. Give you an example of how cruel this man was, or at least his overseers were. There was a story of an um, of a slave a uh, great, 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 great uncle of ours named Uncle Willie who went fishing on this plantation without asking. And when he came back, the slave master strapped him to a tree and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. And then he took this uh, leather strap with had, you know, broken rocks and glass and nails on it. Something's kind of like the cat and nine tails. And he beat this slave forefather of ours until all the flesh was pulled out of his back. Now the family, in an effort to save his life, put lard or grease on a sheep to use like one big band-aid to wrap around his body to stop the flow of the blood. But in spite of their efforts and because of this man's cruelty, he bled to death and died for going fishing. All right? And if he heard them praying, he would beat them as well. But listen, they were Christians and they prayed anyway. What they would do is they take this kettle pot, this is the pot they use, they turn it upside down like you see it here, but then they would prop it up with, a, with, with rocks, about four of them, so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or so like you see here. They would then prostrate themselves on the ground and pray underneath the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle will muffle their voices as they pray through the night. And the story that was passed down with the pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time, so they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. <laughs> One day, freedom came. This young teenage girl, she decided to keep that pot and that story in our family. So she passed it on to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed it on to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to William Ford Sr., then William Ford Jr., then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm there in this conference, and Dutch is saying this. The whole thing about connecting with the prayers of those who have gone before us, I'm going to think, my God. I can come with an agreement with the prayers of my forefathers. Think about how God had made me a spiritual father and a mentor, the heart he gave me for revival. Begin to think about just how much of our history has been lost and how God wants to reconnect us with the unfinished business of those who have gone before us. I begin to think of this kettle as you know, a reminder of the prayer bowls in heaven, <laughs> Revelation 5 and 8. I thought, my God, I can come in agreement with the prayers of my forefathers for the freedom of the next generation. I thought about how much exponential, you know, power that could be released and created from that. And Dutch said this, he said, wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony that he used the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again? I think that's exactly what he wants to do. And, um, and so that really launched me into everything I've been doing across the country with, with, with prayer and intercession. It turned into a book Dutch and I wrote together called History Makers. And uh, we did that prayer journey. And it just we just saw amazing things. And during that time, God began to break my heart over the abortion issue. All right? I was in Williamsburg uh, during that prayer time. And I don't know how to explain it except for... I got baptized in the Holy Spirit again. I wept for almost three hours. I said, Lord, what's going on? He said, William, you walked me through your neighborhood. Now I'm walking, through, walking you through my neighborhood in America. And I'm sharing with you my heart about the, the, the broken treaties. I'm sharing with you my heart about the injustices done between black, white, and red. And then he said this to me. He said, 
if I heard the silent whispers of slaves under the kettle pots, how much more so do I hear the silent screams of babies being aborted in America? And God broke my heart for the abortion issue. Right? This was in, in 2001. So all along this time, I got swept up in this thing and began to understand what an intercessor really is, right? You look at Isaiah 59, 15, and 16, it says this. It displeased the Lord that there is no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and he was astonished there is no intercessor. If you go back and check out the words behind them, we see it in English, but the, the Hebrew words that make up this verse are amazing. The word for uh, displeased, where he says he was, it was, he was displeased that there was no justice, is the word ra'ah, which means to be shattered to pieces. So when God sees an injustice, his heart is shattered to pieces. Then it says, when he couldn't find an intercessor, he's astonished. The word astonished is the Hebrew word shamem, and it literally means to sit and to stare, to grow numb, to be devastated. So when God sees an injustice, his heart is shattered to pieces. Then he looks for an intercessor to stand in the gap on the issue, whatever it is. And when he can't find anybody, he sits and he stares and he grows numb. He says, I can't believe nobody cares about what's going on with slavery. I can't believe that I cares about what's going on with human trafficking. I can't believe that I cares about what's going on with uh, uh, human slavery today or abortion or anything else. And his heart is shattered to pieces. He's looking for an intercessor. That's the thing. So what happens is an intercessor comforts God's heart. And when we comfort his heart, he moves his hand. All right. And then God begins to unlock his heart and share his history with us so we can understand why we're doing what we're doing and we can partner with him and whatever he's doing, right? And so we begin to see stuff like this happen. And, uh, and that's how this whole uh, movement with uh, Bound for Life and how many of you have your, your life bands on, right? <laughs> that's how it all got started. There was a, a dream, a young man named Brian Kim, Lou, Lou Engel and I were... Uh, Colorado Springs, then went from Colorado Springs to Washington, D.C. to, to uh, pray in 2004 there at the Supreme Court there in October. And during this time, a friend of ours named Brian Kim had a dream. Before he had the dream, which this leads up to it, he had this encounter with the Lord. He, for two years, he had been on a, on a Daniel fast. All right? He said, God, give us a pro-life president. So we get a pro-life president in, George Bush, and he says, okay, God, here's the deal. It's been two years I've been on this Daniel fast, so I'm going to eat cake tonight at midnight <laughs> if you don't tell me that you want me to stay on the fast. So he's thinking, okay, great, I'm going to eat cake. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> so he's walking across his college campus, right? It's 10 o'clock, and he's dreaming about cake. <laughs> and he bumps into a friend of his, and he says, hey, man, how you doing? He said, uh, hey, Brian, I want you to meet somebody. It's a friend of mine visiting from out of town, and uh, he reaches out his hand. He says, hey, my name is Brian Kim. The other guy says, hello, how you doing? My name is Daniel Fast. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so he meets a guy named, so what's God saying? God's saying, if you can stay on your fast just a little while longer. <laughs> this guy's saying, I love your fast. Stay in the middle of what you're doing because I'm right in it with you, right? So what happens? Later on, a few months later, 
Daniel is given, I mean, Brian is given a dream. In the dream, he dreams that he sees myself and Lou Engle and other folks standing in front of the Supreme Court with duct tape over our mouths with life written on it. Right? So the next day, the Supreme Court was going to actually come and, um, and actually meet, convene. And so he saw the folks from the NLW there, National Organization for Women, and all the other pro-choice people. And Lou said, you know what? I think God's saying we need to do Brian's dream. We got any duct tape? And the only duct tape they had around was red duct tape. <laughs> so they took it, wrote life on it, and the rest is history. <laughs> that little sign, man, it be- has become like an artifact for the pro-life movement and has brought this culture of life. It's turning the whole nation upside down. All right, everything you've seen with Hobby Lobby and everything else. All these things have been happening as a result of that, right? So anyway, so um, that happens. I share that story because in January 2005, I met somebody who was now, he's, he's actually the person who runs Bound for Life. His name is Matt Lockett. Matt Lockett. We met um, January 17, 2005, while I was in D.C. and uh, we're doing a conference for Lou Engle. And while I'm there, um, Matt's there because of a dream that he had. Let me back up. Matt's there because of a dream that he had. 2004, January 17th, his father had died just suddenly. And Matt, at that time, he was working for Ford Motor Company, doing commercials. He was in the marketing and, uh, department and, and uh, doing commercials for big companies. And he also was a, was a youth pastor, but he was... During this time, just very depressed, despondent, and very shut down. Took a sabbatical from, uh, from ministry. Was trying to hear God. He thought he'd try to find out more about his family, more about his family history, but ran into the same roadblocks that all of his family did. Every time he tried to look up something about his family, he would find out about these courthouse fires that burned up all their family history. So he couldn't find anything. So his dad is gone, and so now he feels this huge disconnect. In the middle of that time period, God gives him a dream. In the dream, he has a dream about a man he never met before, never heard of before, named Lou Engle. And he's in a classroom, a college classroom with Lou, with with 18 to 25-year-olds, and they're praying for the ending of abortion in the dream. And then at the end of the dream, Lou turns over his prayer meeting to Matt. And so Matt wakes up from this dream, and he's thinking, okay, I'm not that big on abortion. And who or what is a Lou Engle? So he gets on this kind of newly invented thing called Google, and he types in the name uh, Lou Engle, and up pops all this stuff about Lou. And he's like, this is crazy. He tells a friend of his who knows another friend who knows another friend who knows Lou, and talks to Lou, and Lou invites him to this conference where we're all together. See, what's going on is behind the scenes, God by his workmanship is weaving together his storyline, right? He comes to the conference. It's January 17th. It's the anniversary when his dad died. And he's thinking, okay, God, this really has to be you because it's the anniversary when my dad died. I got enough pain going on as it is. So um, I need to hear my name called or something like that. So I'm there, and I have the kettle, and I go through my whole spiel. And I say, and this kettle comes from the Lockett side of my family. Harriet Lockett gave it to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett gave it to William Ford. 
and he, I look out in the audience, and there's this guy with his face buried in his hands, and he's sobbing in this mat locket. All right? I don't know him. He comes up. He shares a little bit of the story. He says, I don't know what the deal is, but when you said locket, he said, listen, that's my name. I told God I needed confirmation that I was supposed to be here, and you said locket. She says, I'm freaking out because when you said that, I heard the Lord tell me that he's connected me into, with another Ford and put me into a new family line to be an intercessor for America. I was like, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, how do y'all spell locket? With two T's or one, because I've, I've been doing research on my family. Well, the oldest known family member was a man named Isaac Lockett. He shows up in the 1870 census. He's 90 years old. He said he was originally from Virginia, but he was transferred from Virginia to Lake Providence, Louisiana, probably by will or, you know, because they would, you know, transfer slaves off by inheritance sometimes. And he was spelled, spelled his name was one T. He said, I always spell it with two T's. I said, ah. I said, maybe it's just kind of something prophetic, like with me and Dutch or whatever. So I just kind of prayed for him. Well, listen, nine years, almost 10 years later, Matt Lockett, has been praying in Washington, D.C. He moved from Colorado to Washington, D.C., and just like his dream, Lou turned over his prayer meeting, Bound for Life, in J-Hop, D.C., to Matt. And Matt runs that organization, all right? And then uh, when, he, and when he took it over, I'm, you know, he made me a board member, and, and I was on the board for, for a little while. Well, here's where I have to fast forward. Like I said, God is weaving together this tapestry. We have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. Matt um, went to go pray at uh, Appomattox Courthouse. That's where the South surrendered to, to the North in the, in the uh, Civil War, right? He and Lou Engel, about a year ago. And when they go there to, to, to pray, they come out, and Lou grabs the first book you know, out of the bookstore. And when he opens it up, it opens up to a page that says, The Battle for Lockett's Farm. And it goes on to say that the Civil War ended on the family farm of a family called the Lockett's. And so Matt's freaking out about it. Lou's freaking out. He said, Lou says, It's prophetic, Matt. God wants, to ra- wants you to raise up a house that'll be the battleground. They'll stand between the plague in this nation and see revival coming in abortion. So, yeah, we clap for that. That's powerful. So here's what happens. After that happens, Matt, he had this property that he'd been contending for there in D.C. Has, he had 42 rooms uh, on, uh, on an acre and a half of land, farmland, and um, this huge mansion there. 12,000 acres. And the Lord had him reading Reese House Intercessor at the time period. So Matt would go out and for a year, he prayer walked that area. But now with this, with this confirmation from this book, he's like, God, give me my own Locust Farm. Give me the, the place that will be the battleground where I can battle for the ending of abortion. It'll be a base for our whole group and all that. So he puts the story up about what he found in the book and Locust Farm. puts it up on the Internet. And in one day, a philanthropist finds out about it and buys like it's farm for him. Wow. After one day. That's when you know God is involved in the thing, right? <laughs> so, so that happens. But then right before it closes, it, he does the closing on his birthday, his 42nd birthday. To the prophetic, everything is prophetic, right? <laughs> his brother calls him. And he says, hey, man, I've been making a lot of headway on finding all of our family history. 
And it turns out that uh, we came here from Scotland. And uh, when we came to America as settlers, you know, in Virginia, and, uh, and he said, matter of fact, we have a connection to the Civil War. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's this farm that's in our family called Lockett's Farm. It's the place where the Civil War ended. He's like, you mean the place up by Sailor's Creek? He said, how did you find out about it? He said, I just found out last week. He said, yeah, that's our family. So this is not like a Smith, a guy named Smith and another guy named Smith. No, this is literally Matt's family. So the Civil War ended in Matt's front, family's front yard. All right? So he gets this new place. that's separate from there. Buys it. His base is there. They all moved in there for Boundful Life. Now they're there. Then the Lord tells him, he says, I want you to go back to the original Lockers Farm. Find it in Virginia. So he gets a Civil War map and lines it up with, you know, GPS and all that and puts a pen on it. And he drives three hours to where he doesn't know where, just driving. And he gets to a street called Lockett Street, turns down that street to a National Park Service guard, and he tells him who he is. He says, yes, my name is Matt Lockett. I was coming to look at Lockett's farm. I just saw a little blip. I didn't know if there was a slab there or if it was just a, uh, a tombstone or something like that. So he, and, the, and the guard tells him, says, you're a Lockett? It's the first time me meeting one of y'all. Yeah, the house is back there and it's still standing. So Matt goes back and sees this house, goes inside, and there's this guy named Jimmy Garnett on the inside of it. He winds up being a distant family member of Matt's. All right? Not necessarily saved, kind of rustic, but knows his history. And he says, Yeah, he says, matter of fact, our families are connected because the last living locket. Uh, was a woman, and she married a Garnett. But the Garnets loved the history of the Lockett so much that they put Lockett as the middle name for all of their family. So his son was named, like, I would be William Lockett Ford or whatever, right? All, everybody had the, the middle name Lockett. And so he said, let me tell you something about your name. He said, your name Lockett's because you had a distant family member that used to serve the King of Scotland. And the king loved the way you served him so much that he said that you had locked up the heart of the king. So that's how you got the name Lockett. It means one who locks up the heart of the king. And if that don't sound like an intercessor, I don't know what else does, right? Then he says, yeah, uh, y'all owned hundreds and thousands of acres throughout Virginia. And y'all also owned slaves, too. But many of the lockers didn't treat their slaves the way other people did. He said, for example, uh, your great-great-great-grandmother, Eleanor, walked in on two slaves trying to teach each other how to read and write, and which back then, during that time was against the law, and they could have been beaten. And she closed the door behind her, and she said, okay, if we're going to do this, let's do this right. And so... She uh, called in her daughter, and she had her daughter teach those two slaves how to read and write. One of those slaves went on to become the president of Tuskegee University, became an education advisor to four presidents. And then when the Lincoln Memorial was unveiled, he was the one who gave the speech at the unveiling. <laughs> his name is Robert Moton. Right? And then he said, 
not only that, he said, uh, y'all moved throughout all the country, and um, you had lots and lots of family members, three and 400,000 acres up in Virginia y'all had, but then you had many of your family members went across from Virginia. Y'all went down to, to uh, Kentucky, which is where Matt is from. Uh, another large group went to Tennessee, and a lot of those were wiped out by Indians on the way there. But then you had another group that went down to Louisiana. And then without asking, Matt even asking, he says, and sometimes they dropped off the tea. When Matt heard that, he said, well, we got to talk. Because <laughs> remember, my oldest known family member was a man named Isaac Lockett, who was from Virginia, but who was transferred from Virginia down to Lake Providence, Louisiana. Matt and I started looking at this for several months and all the different, you know, software that's out there and everything. And the deal is this. We're like 90% sure that Matt's family is a family that owned our family at one point and gave us the Lockett name. So think about it. Here is my family down in Lake Providence, the God of Providence, praying for the ending of slavery in Lake Providence and all the way back up in Virginia on the farm of the family that used to own them. In that front yard, God ends slavery through the Civil War. But then, but because he's the everlasting God, El Olam, the God who's the God of eternity, past and future, he says, oh, I'm going to take two people from those same family lines and connect them together. And they're going to war against the injustices of their day and cry for a new revival in their generation. Why do I share all this? It's because... God wants to return a sense of awe back to the church. There's no way you can make this stuff up. And not only that, all this is happening to a guy who thought he was a mistake. I thought I was one big mistake. I was born 11 years after all my other brothers and sisters. My mother thought I was actually a tumor and for five months refused to go to the doctor. But when she finally did, she realized she was pregnant with me, <laughs> right? And for years, I had this big knot sign over, my, over myself. But listen, God used all of that stuff, my family history, how we're brought together to create an incredible story to say, you know what? All life is precious. <laughs> and nobody is a mistake. And nothing just happens and there's a story bigger than what anything you can imagine that's going on in your life stand to your feet so for three months i would just wake up and weep you know that's my first time hearing that song god of wonder that's all I would do is just, I was just blown away by the God of wonder. And I would just weep, like, God, just to think, who are we that you are so mindful of us? So the first thing I want to do, I want to pray for people. If you were like me and used to have this big knot sign over you. You still feel like you have that knot sign over you, like you don't exist. Why am I here? You don't have purpose. 
If that's you, raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Anybody here like that? Thank you, Lord. Anybody else? Thank you, Lord. Y'all could keep your hands raised. I'm just have. I want other people to see you because we want to acknowledge you and we want to affirm that you have the right to be here because God willed you into existence. It says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know that it's like the Stradivarius violin. You know that it's so valuable. Its price is so high because. On auction blocks today, they sell for millions of dollars because the Stradivarius, that violin maker, he was so meticulous in how he did everything. He's like, no, the fretboard has to be like this. No, it's too long. No, it's, that's, no the peg has to be just perfect. No, I want, I want the cleft to be just like that. That's how God was with you. He said, I want you to have this kind of eyebrow. No, I want to have that color eyes. No, I want to have this kind of thumbprint. No other thumbprint, no other fingerprint like this one. So, Father, right now, I pray for every person that's ever felt like they were a mistake. Regardless of how they got here, no matter the dysfunction or even how they were treated growing up, God, I thank you for the plan that you have, that you have over their life right now in the name of Jesus. And I break off, Lord, all the baggage of the past. I break off the narrative of the enemy in the name of Jesus. I break off every generational curse and the storyline that they heard in their heads over and over again that they don't matter and that life doesn't matter. I break it off right now in the name of Jesus. I thank you that your stamp, your affirmation is over their heart and over their lives. And that they don't have to do anything for you. They don't have to do anything from you. They don't have to be underneath you or above you. They just need to be with you. Let them know that you're with them, God. In Jesus' name. Now, that being said, I want to pray a little bit into this whole thing, about, especially with the, let's have the team come up, if y'all could. Is worship team still here? Thank you, Lord. You know, the funny thing about lockets, you know, they're usually heart-shaped. And the older they are, it's like the harder it is to pry them open. And you have to really work to pry them open. I really think that all this stuff that happened with me and Matt, it's all being unlocked right now. God is sharing his heart with us. <laughs> because Matt's 10 years of praying in the Supreme Court, praying from that place with duct tape on and people spitting at him. Laughing at him, mocking him, 
listen, you think your little prayer meeting doesn't mean anything. You're comforting God's heart in ways you can't even imagine. Answers are being released. Bowls are being tipped. Slaves are being set free. Babies are being born. Destinies are being realized. Folks are getting saved. Salvation is springing up from the ground. Revival is being ignited because of your prayer life. Your little simple act of devotion. You have no idea when your knees hit the ground, you inaugurate war in the heavenlies. 